This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. So the scripture reading for today is 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Emmaus. I'm going to try to put these back in a way that is not confusing for Brittany when she wants to sing. I'm going to take this. I feel like we could have called this um, Uncomfortable Passages Part 2. But um, if you've spent any time in the book of Corinthians, there's a, a, handful, a handful more parts of uncomfortable passages. Uh, just as a preview, next week we start with verse 1 for next week. says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, is it good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? So we would have, that's for next week. Um, but we're going to have a handful of just, I think, a little bit uncomfortable passages as we sort of work through 1 Corinthians, um, a part of that, especially in this section, we're sort of in the section in 1 Corinthians where Paul laid the foundation in the first few chapters, we talked about that, uh, talked about working through the Spirit, which is why our series is called Taught by the Spirit, so that we need the Spirit in order to understand all the things that have been freely given to us by God. Uh, we talked about how the Spirit doesn't work in plausible ways, it works in powerful ways, uh, and one of those powerful ways that the Spirit works is that he works in our, in our suffering and in our weakness. And this is sort of the foundational elements that Paul laid in the beginning of Corinthians. And um, we're reminding ourselves of those things as we work through the rest of the book. So Paul sort of, right after he lays some of those foundational things, he, he right away jumps on and deals with some really serious sin issues that are happening in this church. Um, I joked, I called the church uh, a sports bar church just because of the... The, the chaos that's sort of going on in that community. Um, people are speaking all over the place. Um, you have like a varying levels of drunkenness even within the, the gathering of itself. And then after last week's passage where we said, um, uh, is it actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you in a kind that is not tolerated even among, among pagans for a man has his father's wife? Um, after last week's passage, I feel like calling it a sports bar church is a, is an insult to sports bars everywhere. There's just, there's just a lot of kind of troubling things going on in the Corinthian church. So Paul lays the foundation for these things and immediately addresses 
two of the more troubling things, the divisions that they have with their leaders in the church and what was a, what was a sort of um, really destructive sexual sin in the church that the church as a whole was, was promoting in, a, in an interesting way. And we, and we talked about that last week. We talked about how sin is sort of corrupting to us. And sin corrupts us so that we can't enjoy and bask in and, and, and sense the wonderful beauty and presence of the, the peace and joy that's found in the gospel. And I, I sort of uh, associate it like radiation. You don't always see it, and it may not always affect you immediately, but it's, it has this corrupting nature on our souls and, and keeps us from enjoying more of the beauty and the wonder of the gospel. And so we sort of, we went through that and we talked about how sin is sort of corrupting and we're in this section now in Corinthians. We're in this section where he goes on and it's, a, it's almost like a little introductory piece to help the Corinthians think more carefully about sexual things uh, as it relates to marriage and singleness and about food. And after this sort of introductory section where he brings up food and sexual things, he goes on for the next chapter, a really long chapter to talk about marriage and some of the sexual things there. And then there's a whole nother chapter about sort of how they're dealing with food. So, so we're sort of in this introductory section where he's dealing with that. And this morning we're gonna talk about the, the deceitfulness of sin. We're gonna talk about the deceitfulness of sin. And I wish, you know, as I thought about this even throughout the week, um, when we talked about how sin is corrupting, we, we went through the passage and we tried to approach sin in a, in a particular way based on what, what Paul was sort of using with this very extreme example. We took that down to sort of lesser examples and said, well, how do we approach sin? And he said, well, we should grieve sin. We should mourn sin. Like sin is, sin is if sin is this destructive, if sin is like, like radiation that's sort of corrupting us and keeping us from enjoying the beauty of the gospel, we should grieve that, whether it's in our own hearts, whether it's in people we love, whether it's in people we just interact with on the street, it should grieve us that people are caught up in sin. And then we talked about acting on sin. We talked about the fact that the Spirit has set us apart to act on sin, to act as, to be transformed more in the image of Christ. Um, we talked about how we should be willing to suffer if we're gonna deal with sin. Sin is, is difficult, and it's, it's in our suffering and weakness. It's one of the foundational things that God begins to open up our eyes so that we can see more wonder and more beauty of the gospel. And I, as I thought about this passage, I thought if sin was just corrupting, if sin was just a corrupting thing, it would be really easy to deal with. If that was the only way I could describe sin as being corrupting and being destructive, then I think it would be easy to deal with. The problem is that sin is also very deceitful. Sin is also very deceitful. And I, I Googled the, the, the word, we don't use deceit very oft, often, and you could say sin lies to us, and I think, I think that's a little soft. Sin does more than that. Uh, the Google definition of deceitful is the action or practice of deceiving someone by concealing or misrepresenting the truth concealing or misrepresenting the truth. This is, an, this is an active concealing of the truth or misrepresenting the truth. And I think that's what makes it so difficult to deal with sin because if it was just corrupting and we knew that, then it wouldn't be an issue. We would say, whoa, this is really bad. I shouldn't do this and now I'm enjoying more of God. This is awesome. But, but sin is worse than that. Sin is actually super, super deceitful. It actually takes the true and wonderful things that we believe and either hides, intentionally hides some of those things, conceals some of those things from us, or, or misrepresents those things. 
so that we're fooled by sin. And I think we get, we get caught up, I think, you know, whether intentionally or not, most of us think that we're, we're equipped to deal with the deceit of sin. But uh, there's a passage in Jeremiah, if you want to turn there, just, and I'll read it out loud, but if you go to Psalms and then go over a few, Isaiah, Jeremiah, but if you look at Jeremiah 17, it talks about how deceitful our sin is. Jeremiah 17, verse nine says this. The heart, or the the inner being of who we are, Paul calls it the inner man, says the heart is deceitful above all things, above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who can understand it? Our hearts are deceitful because of sin, because of sin being entered in the world. Our hearts are deceitful above all else. Who can understand it? And I think that's like, a, that's like a weighty passage. I think about the father of lies. Jesus says he's been lying from the beginning. It doesn't say our heart is deceitful, but less than Satan. That's like a, that's a, my heart, because of sin, is more able to conceal the truth or misrepresent the truth than Satan himself. That's crazy to me. Our hearts, our wicked hearts are so deceitful because of sin that they can twist the truth, they can hide the truth, and they can mess with the truth so that we, we don't see the corrupting nature of our sin and we miss out on the beauty and the joy and the wonder of the gospel. And what's an encouraging, he says, I, the Lord, search the mind and the heart. And that's kind of what we're gonna look at this morning. We're gonna, we're gonna be taught by the Spirit so that we can be exposed to the deceitfulness of sin because you and I by ourselves don't have the ability to see how our own hearts deceive us. Our own hearts are better at hiding truth from us and twisting the truth than anything else in all of creation. So this morning we're gonna be, we're gonna be taught by the Spirit. We're gonna be taught by the Spirit through his word so that we can see how our sins deceives us. We can see how, how sin actively conceals and misrepresents the truth. And in my prayer, the thing that I've been praying for for us this week is that, that we, would, we wouldn't underestimate how much we're deceived by our own hearts and that as we are exposed to the ways that we deceive ourselves, that that would, that would push us more and more to rely on the Spirit, that that would push us more and more to say, Lord, help me see how I'm deceived by my own sin Help me, help me be involved in, even in the community so that my sin can be exposed by those who you've equipped. Not, not so that I can feel down, not so that I can beat myself up, but so that I can enjoy more and more of the beauty of everything that I have in the gospel. So I want us to be exposed to how our hearts deceive us, how sin deceives us in such a ridiculous and crazy way so that all of us can, can grow so all of us can enjoy more and more of the gospel. So as we, we, we talked about the corrupting nature of sin last week for the same reason, so that we can enjoy more of the gospel, and today we're gonna look at how our sin actually deceives us, how it sort of tricks us and hides the truth from us. So let's, let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to open our eyes to what he has to say in his word, and ultimately so that we can find more joy and more beauty in what we have in our heavenly Father. So let's pray before we jump in. Dear Heavenly Father, um, even as I wrestle with these things myself this week, um, I'm at awe 
at how I am able to deceive myself. Um, coming up here to say things in your word so that we would be exposed. I know that, that even in, in being exposed to those things, I, I still fall, I still am deceived by my own wicked heart. And yet you've given me your Holy Spirit. You've given this community, your family, your Holy Spirit, Lord, so that we could, we could wrestle with these things in a way that transforms us more and more into the image of your son, Lord. I thank you that you have equipped us as, as crazy, ridiculous as our deceptive hearts are, Lord, I thank you that you have equipped us with your spirit so that we could see through that deception, so that we could see through that deception and see more of your, your beauty, so we could see through that deception and find more rest and more joy in who you are. Lord, I pray that your spirit will work in a supernatural way, Lord, a supernatural way, not just to expose us to our sin, but to, to help us feel your presence and your comfort as we look at your word this morning. And thank you for this time. In your name I pray, amen. All right, so we're gonna start in verse 12. And I wanna start before we talk about how sin messes with truth or, or how sin... Um, conceals or, or misrepresents truth, I kind of want to start with the fact that sin, act, sin uses truth. It seems a little counterintuitive, but sin actually uses truth. Look at verse 12. It says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. And Paul repeats this phrase, this all things are lawful for me, uh, later in the book, um, but he, it's this idea where, where Paul grew up a Jew. And if, and if you've read, um, if you're in your Bible reading plan and you haven't got to the most exciting parts in Leviticus and Deuteronomy yet, there were a handful of things that were and were not lawful for a Jew. He, they couldn't have bacon, which is probably the hardest thing for our brunching city, Denver. But, but you, couldn't, you couldn't have bacon um, and there was a lot of very particular things that you couldn't have. Um, you, how you ate was particularly designed with the purpose in mind, ultimately, to point us to what Christ fulfilled when he came and suffered and died and rose again. But how you ate was prescribed and very particular. They couldn't, how they marry was very specific. They were part of a, a, a very particular culture a, a very small country, and, and, you know, it might be tough to date now, but for a Jew, they couldn't even go outside of their, their, little, their little group. They couldn't, they couldn't marry foreigners. It was very particular, like, how that, was, how that was supposed to happen. Where they live was even designated on some, some points. The way the tribes were divvied up and, and uh, how you inherited different things, all of these things were, were very particularly prescribed in the Old Testament for the Jewish people. And ultimately, these things point us and are fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. But there's a whole bunch of super particular laws about what they wore, about what they eat, about where they lived, about the people that they were able to marry, uh, that were, were in sort of this Jewish system that, that were given to us through the law of Moses. So now, now that the law has ultimately been fulfilled in Christ, Paul says, hey, all things are lawful. All things are lawful for me. And later he goes on to say to the Jew, I become a Jew. 
to the Gentile become a Gentile, to one under the law, to one to under the law, to one not under the law, not under the law. And he's telling us that now that Christ has come and now that the sort of the door has been blown open on the gospel, all these little laws that were pointing to something that was fulfilled in Christ, now Paul is saying, look, all things are lawful. And this is a, this is a beautiful truth. This is a wonderful thing. We, we use the phrase of Christian liberty. There are a lot of things as a believers today that we have freedom to just choose. There's a lot of things that we can do that, that should not weigh on our conscience, that we should have, have freedom to do. What Netflix show we like the most? Christian Liberty, we can do that. What is our, what's our favorite beer that we like to drink? Christian Liberty, we can do that. Where do you like to worship? Where do you want to live? What kind of job do you want to have? Who do you want to marry? There's a ton of these things. They're just a wonderful aspect, a wonderful aspect of living today after the resurrection of Jesus where we have a lot of Christian liberty to kind of do, in a sense, for us, all things are lawful in a way that was not the case for Paul growing up. But here's the thing is, Paul is not approaching the Corinthian church right now because they're honoring and displaying the beauty and the wonder of Christ within their character. Paul's not writing to the Christian church because they're holy and set apart for God. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth because they have some serious things that are messed up. And we might think like, how did they get to this point? And the fact that he repeats this phrase with some caveats is a good idea that in the, in the Corinthian church, hey, all things are lawful. Look, all that stuff, all that stuff is done with. We can do whatever we want. And I think that's what sin does, and we don't always realize this. Sin will take good and wonderful and true things and will deceive us and will tempt us and will drag us into sin. It's crazy how it does that. And we don't even recognize it at times. It says all things are lawful. And he goes on then to say, okay, yes, wonderful. All things are lawful. That's a true thing. There's a, there's a context in which that makes sense and that it's beautiful and that Christians have liberty to do things today that they didn't before. But he adds, and he kind of goes on with two little phrases in verse 12. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Not all things are helpful. And this is one of those truths that in our sin, our hearts wants to hide from us. Not all things are helpful. This is, this is another truth. And I, I think about, um, I think the NASB translates that not all things are profitable. Not all things are profitable. Another way you could say it is not all things are productive. And if I asked each and every one of you, what was the most productive thing you did this week? And you think about how your week went. I said, what was the most productive thing that you did this week? I'd probably get a different answer for every single one of you. We don't. So when Paul talks about productive, when Paul talks about helpful, when Paul talks about what is profitable, he's considering that within a biblical worldview. He's considering that within the context of the, the letter he's writing or within a biblical worldview. So if I were to say, according to scripture, what is the chief end of man? <laughs> and gives it away a little bit. What is the, what is the main goal for every single person made in God's image. And that's to glorify God. 
the main end, the most profitable thing, the most productive thing that someone made in God's image could do last week, this week, or forever to come, the most productive thing you could ever do in your entire life is to give glory to God. Because he created you, he made you in his image, and he shared his glory with you, and he's given you so many wonderful gifts before we even get to the gift of his son, the most productive thing you could do in your entire life is to give glory and honor to our creator. And I think about that, and I think about our Christian liberty and the things that I really like to enjoy and how often does my heart say, yeah, Aaron, but does that bring glory to God? Not as often. That's not less true than the other element. And yet we're so easily deceived by our sin. It exposes those things. And Paul's saying, yes, all things are lawful. That's wonderful. But does everything glorify God? That's the most profitable thing we could do in a given day. He says the other thing, it's a little, uh, it's a little I think, more difficult to understand. He says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. I will not be enslaved by anything. And I know there's a handful of people uh, in our church that have been involved or do counseling, and sometimes you see people who are very much caught up in a very destructive behavior. It's, it's not uncommon. You see people who are caught up in a behavior that's, that's ultimately destructive. Um, in one of my past jobs, I was exposed to people who, who were caught up in drug addiction, and I would have candid conversations with them, um, usually as they were being arrested, about how they know that they shouldn't be doing this. How they know that their addiction to whatever it, drug or whatever thing they were doing was, was something they shouldn't do. But, but they, were, they were a slave to it. They were, sort of, they were addicted to it. They, they, they couldn't help but obey the demands that that, that addiction kind of weighs on them. And I think that's the first thing I went to when I thought, okay, well, I will not be enslaved by anything. And I think about that and I paint that picture and I'm like, this is one that I don't have to care that much about. I don't think I'm a slave to any drugs right now. And I, and I thought about that and I was like, you know, and probably there's more to this than just some of these extreme situations. I'm like, what does scripture say about being enslaved to something? What does scripture say does it mean for you and I to be enslaved to something? And if you wanna flip just one book over into Romans chapter six, he kind of talks about this, and I think in a really helpful way. Romans chapter six and verse 16, for everyone on their phone that's like waiting for the next button to push. Um, Romans six, verse 16, he talks about what it means to be enslaved to something. He says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. And I thought that was a really helpful phrase. You are slaves to the one you obey. That's how you know if you're enslaved to something. What do you obey? Who do you obey? And he says there's two options here. In Romans, he says there's two options. You're either slave to sin, or you're a slave to righteousness either obedient to looking, looking like Christ, to displaying the beauty of Christ, having the peace of Christ, having the joy that's found in the gospel, you're either obedient to that 
which leads to righteousness, or you are obedient to sin. And I thought about that. And it's what are, what are things that are, are happening in our lives that keep us from being obedient to righteousness? And one of the, one of the first ones that kind of came to mind is like when you're watching like a series and you know, you know, this is low-hanging fruit right here. You're like, all right, it's 10 o'clock, but this is, I'm super into this. <laughs> and I'm really tired. And I really want to watch this. I know that if I'm up until two in the morning, I will struggle on all sorts of fronts. If it's a work day, I am not going to be obediently working heartily under the Lord the next day with three hours of sleep. I, I am probably going to be more stressed out by my child tomorrow or my relationship with my spouse or whoever it is I have to work with, but I have to finish watching this. And it's in those moments where even just little kind of somewhat harmless things like that, our sin deceives us into saying, our sin deceives us into saying, no, you don't have to be obedient to righteousness. Be obedient to this next, ne the little bar is moving. It's already, it's just gonna go on to the next episode. I thought it was, I looked, uh, I looked up this quote, I thought it was worth sharing from uh, one of the Netflix executives, and this happened like, like three years ago, so you may have heard this. And he's, he's talking to, on an investment call, and he goes, you know, think about it. When you watch a show from Netflix, and you get addicted to it, you stay up late at night. Now, this is what the executive says, and he goes, we're competing with sleep on the margin for the most part, and so it's a very large pool of time. <laughs> He's like, our competition is everyone going to sleep. We got all sorts of sleep to take from people. We got all, well, that's who we're competing with. It's not Amazon video. It's not all these other things. It's just, we just need people to get less sleep. And I think that's what Paul is saying. Who do you obey? Yeah, Netflix shows are great. All things are lawful. But who do you obey? Who do you obey? What are you a slave to? And I think that can show up in a bunch of other more difficult ways. What about your approval at work? You know, it's great to have good, be, be approved of at work. It's great to, to have your boss respect the work that you do. That's a wonderful thing. We have Christian freedom to be successful and to do well. That's a wonderful thing. But what happens when that gets taken away? What happens when you don't get that? What happens when there's maybe things in personal relationships that affect how well you perform at work? What happens when God brings a situation into your life where you're called to obey and do something for him that maybe, maybe puts some strain, puts some strain on how your approval at work is? What do we obey? For righteousness or for the approval of people that we enjoy? And it's, it's so, sin is so deceitful it takes these like wonderful good things and just twists them just enough and says, hey, you, you should work hard. You should just give everything to your job. That, that's what anyone would do. You should do that. And I, maybe I'm speaking for myself because I have to like step back sometimes from, from how much I work and, and, and obey the Lord and obey righteousness and, and have more concern and care for my family or for my wife or for, for those who are in need. Those are, those are things that I, I'd rather be getting the things done. I'd rather be, be finding some success or something in my job. And the question comes down to, what do we obey? Circumstances is another thing 
The, the easy one is when you're hangry. <laughs> you know, like, what, what do you obey? Righteousness? Or whatever it is you're having for lunch that day? More difficult, what about when you're in a relationship and, and someone you care about, friend, family, spouse, says something just inconsiderate of you? Is that a circumstance now that you have to be obedient to and bring wrath? Or can you obey righteousness and still bring love and compassion, even when the circumstance is really difficult? And that's what sin does. It uses the truth. It conceals the truth. And Paul's giving us just sort of a, an introductory thing to truths that it conceals. And um, that was just the first verse. I promise the rest of the verses won't take that long. Um, he goes on from here to talk about a couple of negative truths that, we don't all, that, that sin wants to conceal from us and then talks about a couple of positive truths, a couple of uh, encouraging things. And, and I, I think what's difficult is when we're dealing with the deceitfulness of our own sin and our own hearts, that's weighty. It kind of weigh, it weighs on us. And, I, and I, want to, I want us to sort of feel that a little bit. It should weigh on us. We should grieve our sin because we're so easily deceived, but I don't want to leave us there. So he's gonna give us two negative truths and he's gonna give us two positive truths that are actually things that we forget that don't just weigh on us in a way that's sort of, sort of something we grieve, but also something that encourages us and something that builds us up and something that helps us more appreciate the beauty and the wonder of the gospel. So, so look at verse 13. I wanna talk about the two of the negative things first. He says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Amen. And the positive elements in the next couple of verses are sort of gonna help us sort of understand what he's getting at here. But he's saying, look, food is wonderful. And the Corinthian church is having all sorts of struggles with food. Food is wonderful, but we forget all the wonderful things that God gives us, all the gifts that God gives us, all the, the, the beauty of his creation isn't eternal. And that's the last thing your sin wants you to know. That's the last thing your heart really wants to wrestle with. Is that all these wonderful things that are part of Christian freedom that God has given us, all the, uh, the you know, I'm looking forward to some charcuterie this afternoon. Um, I'm excited about that. Uh, that's wonderful. Uh, but that's not eternal. That's not something that, that lasts. That's something that's ultimately gonna be destroyed. So if I were to consider anything today, if I were to, to meditate on anything today, if I were to, to be exposed to anything today that could give me joy and peace and wonder, why would, why would I put something that's so temporary so high up? Why would I put something that's not eternal is to, to weigh so heavily on my joy and my peace today? And that's all Paul is saying. We, don't, we, don't, we forget, often we forget that some of the wonderful blessings, that are definitely wonderful blessings that we have, are just, are just not eternal things. It's, it's eternal things that we can find our hope and our joy and our peace in. That's one of the negative truths that he says. It's just, it's temporary. Even food, even your stomach. And the next thing he says is, the body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And he's talking about our purpose, and we've, we've touched on this a handful of times as we've gone through Corinthians. At the very beginning, it says you're set apart. You are set apart. Your purpose is actually set apart for holy service to our creator. So that's our purpose. And so, we've, so yes, 
we have Christian freedom. Yes, we, we have a context in which we can actually enjoy the wonder and the beauty of what God has designed in, in male and female relationships. And, and that can be a, a great thing and something that we celebrate and are thankful for and, and, and it can be a wonder. But he's like, that's not, that's not the end game here. That's not the, that's not the main purpose. Your, your body isn't designed for what, what he says is sexually immoral things, but your body is designed and created particularly for the Lord and the Lord for you. You are made in the image of God so that you could have the fellowship and the joy and the wonder of being in the presence of God and actually experiencing the glory of God. That's the purpose for your body. And he expands on that with some of the positive things. Look at verse 14. He says, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. And I think when, when Paul mentions the resurrection, for me personally, it was easy to just say like, oh, well, um, my knee hurts, um, I'm out of shape, I can't wait till there's like future body and it's like not broken and stuff. Um, and so Jesus is already there with the six pack, I don't know. <laughs> but he has, the, he has whatever thing I don't like about my body, there's this new body. And it's easy to just talk about this resurrection as, as a sort of a, a, just a new body where everything won't be terrible and everyone will be happy. And I think that that is a true element to, to our resurrection. But if you, if you look at what Jesus is talking about, what is Jesus talking about with his disciples as he leads up to the cross? He's talking about going to the Father, preparing a place for them in the very presence of the creator God of the universe. He's talking about raising up, he's talking about raising us up in immortality so that we're holy and equipped to enjoy the very beauty and presence of the creator himself. That's what we look forward to. That's what we meditate on today. That's what we have our joy and our peace and our wonder in. That, that's not something that's, that's destroyed. That's not something that passes away. That's something that God is transforming us. That God is, is literally changing who we are in our inner man or in our inner woman. He's, he's making all things new so that we would be raised up and equipped to live in face-to-face communion with our creator. And in our sin deceives our hearts into saying, but Aaron, this other thing over here is better. Your sin deceives your heart into forgetting that truth. And when we're taught by the Spirit, he reminds us of these things so we can see through the unreal the unparalleled deceit of sin in our own hearts so we can see through that and we can fixate our hearts and our minds on the beauty and the glory of Christ. He goes on to give us another sort of positive thing in verse 15. He says, do you know, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. You might say, what's so positive about that? 
Um, he says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? We could use a couple different words for members. I think of like appendages. You know, we're, we're instruments of the Messiah. Your bodies that you have today, if you've been given the Spirit, if you've been united to Christ, the Messiah, the very king of the universe sitting on the throne, your body is an instrument for him to bring his kingdom into this world. Think about that. As he begins to transform you, as he sets you apart, as he helps you, gives you the wisdom and the spirit to, to deal with the, the corrupting nature of sin, to deal with the, the deceitfulness of your very own sin, your body is an extension of Jesus sitting on his throne and building his kingdom today. That's what you're a part of. And if your body is a part of bringing in the kingdom of God, if you're, you're being shaped in the image of Christ so that you can look like Christ and love others around you at your workplace, in your city, if you can image the beauty and wonder of Christ because your body is an instrument for his kingdom in this world, why would you drag it into a prostitute? It seems like a... You know, I think about that and I'm like, I don't, I don't think anyone in Emmaus is going to prostitutes right now. Um, thank the Lord for that. Um, there's forgiveness, if that's a struggle. There's no, there's no sin that's outside of, I mean, this, if Corinthians isn't a good example of that, there is no sin that is outside the reconciling work of the gospel. If Corinthians tells us anything, it should tell us that. But he's, how often, how easy is it for in our sin for our hearts to deceive us into thinking differently about what our bodies are for? Your body is designed not only to have fellowship with the Father, but to bring in the kingdom of God. First in you and in those around you. That's why we say that we wanna see Denver transformed by the beauty of the gospel. We're the ones transformed. We're, we're literally instruments for our king sitting on the throne. And we, when we go about our day, we think about our jobs, we celebrate with our friends, we enjoy all these wonderful God-given Christian freedoms, and it's so easy for us to just forget that this is what the purpose of our body is for. And he goes on, he we talked about how sin uses truth, the truth that all things are lawful. We talked about how sin conceals the truth, and we kind of hit a handful of them right there. Sin likes to conceal those truths for us, but sin also likes to minimize or likes to misrepresent things that are true. So I think that's why Paul kind of goes on in this next section where he talks a little bit more about what it means to be members of Christ. He kind of, he knows that we are gonna minimize this reality that we're united to Christ. This is what we do in our sin. So he goes on for a couple of verses to just add some emphasis to that. I have to turn the page. Look at verse 16. We'll go 16 and 17. He says, or do you not know that he is joined to a prostitute, becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. 
he's quoting Genesis. He's just going back to Genesis. And he's like, let's, let's, just, let's just break this down for a second. Don't you realize what God designed sex for? Let's just start, let's just go back to the very beginning of our scripture before the fall and, and talk about how God orchestrated this out for us. He says the two will become one flesh. This is, this is about as old as a passage as you, could, as you could get. And he's talking about this reality that God has actually designed husband and wife to enjoy the, the, the beauty and the majesty of sexual union within the covenant of marriage so that they could be one flesh. And, and it's not just to stop there. He's, it, this little picture of the union between man and wife that's from the very beginning, he goes on. Look at what he says. He, he helps us understand why this picture is here. He says, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. God has designed male and female before the fall becoming one flesh so that you, Christian, married or not, would understand the gravity of what it means that you are united to Christ through the Spirit. You become one Spirit with him. If, if appropriate sexual relations is meant to point us towards the wonder and beauty of the work of Christ and his people, then you can sort of understand why God takes that so seriously. It's meant to actually illuminate, it's meant to actually help us begin to even try to grasp this great mystery that you and I are united to Christ. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, after the resurrection of the Son, we are one spirit with our, with our King. That's why we can be members of Christ. That's why we can be instruments for building of his kingdom in this world because we're so intimately connected to who Jesus is. We're one spirit with him. And if sexual deviancy, if, 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 if this picture that's supposed to point us to what Jesus is doing and, and how he's connected to us is, is pictured in the, the appropriateness of a sexual relationship, then any sort of twist on that is an offense to the person and work of Christ. Which is why he goes on to say, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Flee sexual immorality. Paul is trying to give us the weight. This, this is not a truth that in our sin we can just minimize. Who we are, how we're transformed, what our purpose is, if we'll be able to see the Lord and, and enjoy his beauty forever has everything to do with our union with Christ. Without union with Christ, Jesus succeeded and is gonna enjoy it, but none of the rest of us are. But joined to him, We've been washed, we've been sanctified, we've been justified. We talked about this last week. Joined to him, we get to, we get to experience that. And I think this is another one of those sort of extreme examples um, in the passage, and the Corinthians is gonna be flush with that, extreme examples of sin. But how many of you, 
How many of you have seen something, seen someone, male or female, and, and desired it in a way you shouldn't? Sin will twist that. Sin will tell you that's not a big deal. Sin will tell you your body is for you to enjoy yourself. And it's our, our wicked hearts are exposed and we get caught up in this lie that our bodies are for ourselves and not for the Lord. We get, we get caught up in this lie that we're just saying, oh yeah, we are united with Christ and, and this, this idea of, of sexual intercourse between a, a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage is meant to point us to the wonder and the beauty and the permanency of our connection to Jesus himself. Amen. But, but we don't wanna... We don't want to emphasize that truth when things we like to look at are in front of us, whatever degree that is. And that's the deception of our sin. It twists these things and it, it, it minimizes these truths. And he says, flee. I think this is really difficult. Um, I mean, just sort of wrestling with these things myself through the week, um, having scripture sort of expose my heart, show me what I'm enslaved to, show me what I obey, show me about how often I ask the question, does this glorify God, does this honor him? And I feel like there was, a, uh, even times as I, as I think through these things and as I, as I wrestle with my sin, it's really easy to get, get kind of down on ourselves. It's really easy for this to just kind of weigh on us. And I think, as we deal with the sort of the corrupting nature of sin, um, and we see with the deceptive nature of sin, and, and the Spirit is opening our eyes to be exposed to these things, um, we see kind of maybe even just a tiny little glimpse of what Jeremiah is saying when he says the heart is desperately wicked above all things, is deceitful above all things. We're almost just getting like a little door opening, a little tiny crack and how our hearts actually take good and wonderful things and, and either suppress them or, or, or carefully hide them so we don't enjoy the, the beauty and the wonder of the gospel. We're really just getting a peek. We're really just getting a peek on how wicked we really are. And I think the, Tim Keller says, and I, I, this is just a wonderful quote, and I think Paul is sensing the weight that's sort of holding us down as we like understand more about our hearts and he, and he goes here, but he says, we're, Tim Keller says, we're more desperately wicked than we could ever imagine. Yet we're more loved than we could ever imagine. We're more desperately wicked than we can ever imagine. Yet we're more loved than we can ever imagine. And I think as we get to peek in and see how, how deceived we really are, none of this is a surprise to the Lord. He's not like, oh, Aaron, I'm glad you... Um, found that you were a slave to these things, you know, I didn't know that before I died for you. And I think we, we underestimate the love that the Father has for us and the Son because we, it's easy for us to get weighed down on these things. It's easy for us to just think less of ourselves in these things, but these are things that God has always been exposed to. God knows how wicked our hearts is. He says that in Jeremiah, he says, I know these things. And I think that's why Paul goes on in verse 19, because he, he senses that we're, we're, we're feeling the weight. We're feeling the, the gravity 
of the deceitfulness of our own sin. And he goes on in verse 19 and says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Do you not know that your body is a temple? And, and I, I just feel like I have to say this. He's not talking about working out. Um, he says, do you not know that your body is a temple? You have God himself dwelling in you to deal with your wicked heart. You have the very creator of the universe. This is how much it takes to be transformed into the image of Christ. This is how much it takes to not be deceived by the deception of sin. This is how much it takes to, to actually experience and enjoy and rest in the beauty and the wonder of the gospel as we, as we sense the, the presence of our Father as he raises us up for eternal life, a face-to-face communion with him. This is what it takes. It takes the third person of the Trinity dwelling in you. And I think that's a, that's a wonderful truth that's meant to, that's meant to encourage us. We, we shouldn't forget this as we're, as we're weighed down by our sin. He says, you have this spirit from God himself dwelling in you. And he goes on and says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You were bought with a price. You are not your own. He's reminding us as we were weighed down by our sin, as we can think about all the ways we were deceived this week, as we feel the sort of the, maybe the desperation of change sometimes, he says, you were bought with a price. God's son died knowing all these things. Amen. His, the only one, the only one who ever was never deceived by his, by his heart, the only pure, righteous, perfect creature to ever exist in all of humanity the second person in the Trinity, the Son himself, the only thing that ever cost God was the death of his own son. That's what God paid for us. He knows that. He's paid that price. This is the, this is the beauty of the gospel. As we, as we see and we're exposed to some of the evil in our hearts, we have to remind ourselves is that the price has already been paid. You don't deserve to have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you to transform you. You shouldn't have God taking up residence in your sinful body. You shouldn't be a member to work the kingdom of God. None of us should. But this is why he paid the price. This is why he purchased us out of the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. This is a transfer that's happened when we received the Holy Spirit. This is the beauty of the gospel. And I think about how as Christians, there are times where we kind of have low points. We wrestle with this. And I think this is how we deal with sin. It's difficult. It grieves us. It's not like I chose this passage because it's my favorite go-to cheer me up passage in scripture. It's difficult. And I think some of the most one of the most insidious lies I think our heart tells us, and one of the things that we get caught up into is, Aaron, if you deal with that, if you deal with that sin, if you wrestle with that, actually life will be harder. Life will be worse. 
And it couldn't be any further from the truth. As we wrestle with sin, as we see and expose ourselves to our own wicked hearts, it only grows us more and more into our appreciation for the fact that we've been bought with a price. It only grows us more and more in our appreciation for the fact that the very creator God of the universe dwells inside you for the sole purpose of raising you up and having you experience the glory and the beauty and the wonder of face-to-face communion with the creator of the universe. And I think if it's not something you've experienced... If, you, if you're asking yourself, do I have, I have the spirit in me? Is this something that God has given me? Does your sin grieve you? That's evidence of the spirit. The spirit, Jesus says, if I, if I go to the Father, I can't send the spirit. And what does the spirit come to do? He comes to convict us of our sin. That's evidence of the spirit. Does it sound good? To be in the presence of the Father, being bought with a price? Does it sound good to to receive the Spirit and be transformed so you can deal deal with the sin inside you and enjoy the wonder and the beauty of everything that you have in Christ? It was the very beginning of the series. Without the Spirit, we can't understand all the wonderful things we have in Christ. If that sounds good, the Spirit is here to convict you of righteousness, is here to, to reveal these wonderful things to you. This is evidence of the work of the Spirit. And I think as, as a, whether it's a new believer, whether these are things we're wrestling with for the first time, God is not making this complicated. He's saying turn from those lies, turn from those deceptions, and embrace the true and wonderful things. He says receive the Spirit, and, and the first act of stepping out in faith is to be baptized and to, and to worship God and to proclaim that you are part of his community, that you have received the spirit and that you are no longer believing the lies and you're being transformed more and more into the image of Christ. And as, as believers, we, we're constantly reminding ourselves of those things. We're being convicted by our sin. We're reminding ourselves of our baptism that we've already passed through the judgment. We've been bought with a price And so now we're being raised up into a life that's totally new where we can experience the wonder and the beauty and the glory of the gospel. That's the good news. And sin is hard. Sin is, ugh, despicable, deceitful, corrupting, and not even always enjoyable to deal with. But the fruit of that, the end result of that is righteousness. The end result of that is joy and peace in the gospel. So thanks be to God for this unspeakable gift, a Holy Spirit living in us, helping us see right through the deceitfulness of sin so that we can enjoy more of the beauty in the presence of our Father. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, help us believe that you love us. Lord, help us believe that Christ didn't just die to make us feel better about ourselves. Christ died because we're sinful. And we needed that covered. We needed to be bought with the price of his precious blood.
Lord, I pray that the, the wonder of what your son has done would be a, a, a fresh and wonderful thought to us. Lord, that's something only your spirit can do, but that's why you live in us, so that we can love him and worship him more. Lord, I pray that your spirit would expose our lies, that we tell ourselves that the truths that we suppress or the truths that we just don't wanna wrestle with, Lord. I pray that, that you would give us faith and trust in what you're doing in us as we deal with the, the painful realities of our own sin. You love us and have purchased us with a price so that you could transform us. Lord, I pray that as you transform us, the love that you have for us would be seen outward in our city, in our jobs, in our homes, and that you would just, we would shine as light in a dark world because of what you're doing in us, Lord. I thank you for this morning. I thank you that we can, we can sing songs and worship you. I thank you that we can gather even if, if distance and, and not how it was last two years ago. But Lord, we're here worshiping you and you bless that. And you're, you're present with us, Lord. So I thank you for this morning and I thank you for just the beauty of uh, the things you give us to, to enjoy and experience you. In your name I pray, amen.